0: Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show Podcast. If there was so much vaccine in Dougie's freezer, why are we debating about extending the second dose for four months? Or who should go next? We're heading back into a stay-at-home order. And the NDP have some pretty extreme policy resolutions at their convention. It's on the way. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML.
1: I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. If there is so much vaccine in Canadian freezers, why are we waiting four months between doses and having ethical debates about who should go first? My math says that equals a shortage.
0: It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott
1: Thompson.
0: Good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers good back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Week number 55. Uh, feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. Uh, you can send us a note via the website, Thompson at 900chml.com. The phone lines are always open. Uh, what else we got? Uh, all kinds of stuff in regard to uh, COVID-19 and where we are. Um, the, uh, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization is holding a news conference right now. Uh, and have uh, reiterated uh, their support of waiting four months uh, for the second dose. Uh, But my goodness, um, the presentation leaves a little bit to be desired. Uh, You just see a lot of tap dancing as reporters are hammering them, saying, uh, would we be doing this if we did not have a shortage of vaccine? And they're using uh, 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 terms like, I think, uh, you know, Bonnie Henry, Dr. Bonnie Henry from B.C. comes on and said, you know, we've seen other vaccines where the longer we wait before uh, the second dose, the better they get. Of course, we don't have any, you know, uh, data on that. And you're just thinking, oh, my goodness, what is going on? Uh, but again, they, you know, if we had an adequate supply, we would not be having Uh, these discussions so uh, that is going on now also the European Medical Association uh, talked about the clotting saying that it's very rare with the AstraZeneca uh and uh wants to see it uh, uh not used in those below the age of 30 uh they uh confirmed that it is safe and it's uh reward far outweighs the risk but they do uh verify that there uh, is a link other information ontario vaccinating over 104000 people yesterday uh, with the first large batch that kind of uh, arrived over the Easter weekend, uh, and, and again we're seeing hesitancy as as appointments. Um, uh, are booked and then not taken. And we've heard anecdotally, I get this all the time, people who are booking more than one appointment, which is not what you should do, and then they're trying to figure out which vaccine they're serving up, and then they make the decision which one they're going to go to. And if it's AZ, they're out. Uh, And unfortunately, that's just what's happening. So you have to ask yourself, and we'll certainly ask Paul Johnson this question, should we just keep lowering the age? Just keep lowering it, lowering it, lowering it, and then we don't have to have these ethical debates about who has to go first. You know, should these people be going first? so those people be going first should we be stopping the older generations from being vaccinated and now moving it down into essential services and such so uh again the the discussions and the debate uh continues let's bring in paul johnson director of the emergency center with the city of hamilton and on the line now paul thanks for the time hope you're doing well
1: great to be with you scott thanks so much
0: All right, let's get this information out of the beginning and the end of this so we we can repeat it as many times as as possible. Uh, If Hamiltonians want a vaccine, a a shot, what's the protocol? Where do they go? Where are we now?
1: So uh, if you're eligible, uh, then one of the easiest ways, uh, if you can, is to book through the uh, provincial tool. So... um, if you go to hamilton.ca slash vaccine booking, it's, it's the best way to get the information about who's eligible and how you need to actually, uh, book in to get that. So many, many people, particularly from an age-based perspective can book through the provincial booking tool. It's fast. It's straightforward. Uh, and, and you don't have to, you don't have to work, worry about calling somebody and being on hold. You just do it online, get you the date, choose where you want to go and when, and when you want to go and away you go. Uh, there are other uh, situations that cause people to need to phone in. If you don't have a health card, for instance, you'll have to phone into the hotline. And that number is also on the website as well. And then there are groups that we're doing some specific outreach work with. And, uh, and, and workers in particular have uh, a separate portal that they're booking in for essential workers. So again, they're able to get vaccine appointments, uh, but not have to go through the general Ah, piece doesn't get it any faster. It's just a different tool for for workers. So there are a variety of ways. The very best way is to go and read the information online, determine if you're eligible, and if you are, follow the the, the steps that are listed uh, there in terms of how you book for a vaccine, and encourage people who are eligible to do it. Do it right away. Uh, you know, obviously, if there are some questions you need to ask from a health perspective, uh, do that to make sure that you're uh, you're satisfied. Uh, in terms of any risks that you may think you have in terms of the vaccines. But uh, jump on this early. This isn't something we, where we want people to wait a long time. It's it's the way we're going to get out of this.
0: Uh, and who is eligible as of today?
1: Well, the big group uh, that's eligible uh, in, in terms of, of age are, uh, and this is across the city, is those who are 60 years of, of age or older. And they can all book through the provincial booking tool the uh, good news is is that we have other things going on in our community through pharmacies which uh, lower the age and then an announcement yesterday uh, that uh, that the province of Ontario recognizes that we have some postal codes in Hamilton that have um you know the need for us to to look at at an even broader vaccine strategy and in those specific areas with those specific postal codes uh, people who are 50 years of old of age and older are able to book in. But those are, again, specific to the postal code. You will have to live in those areas. Uh, they're they're broad. We're trying to add a few working with the province uh, because right now the two areas are only on the mountain, and uh, we know that there's some other areas that are so-called hotspots. So, you know, people say, well, isn't this confusing? Why can't you give one straight answer about who's eligible? And the answer is this is the way it's going to be. Scott, you know that the province moved Mm -hmm. into phase two of their vaccine rollout, which means certain workers now are going to be eligible, but not all are going to be eligible right away. There's going to have to be a sequencing of it so that we can uh, maintain a, a good flow of the vaccine. We don't have enough to do everybody all at once. And so some people will say, hey, I'm eligible. Why can't I get in yet? The answer is, well, we have to sequence it. So you may have to wait a little bit the same way in the first phase. All of our energies were around long-term care facilities, high-risk retirement homes, uh, and and the workers there. And, and now we've been opening it up to broader populations. So, again, the website has good information there. Uh, I wish there was a one-line answer as to who's mm. eligible uh, in some ways. But in other ways, this means that we're getting it to more and more people, and we're getting it to the people who need it. And that's good news as well.
0: So 60-plus in Hamilton for uh, the big clinics and such, uh, and pharmacies uh, offering the AZ to 50 and above. Is that accurate, or is it 55 and above now?
1: 55. 55 and, then, and above uh, we'll have some postal codes that will be loaded into our system. Uh, if they're not there already, they will be uh, very shortly, and that's 50-plus in certain locations. Uh, within the city of Hamilton, so uh, lots of opportunity, and as you can see, we're getting into a younger and younger population. Scott, after for a long time, this being about those who are the most vulnerable, the most elderly in our community, and now this is moving uh, quite quickly down the uh, down the age range, which is great. And as we get into essential workers. Uh, Essentially, it would be adults who have those jobs. It's not going to be an age-based thing as well. So if you uh, fit into some of the categories around essential work, as we've been doing with uh, healthcare workers, of course, those ages could be anybody who uh, holds that job.
0: Uh, so l- let me run this by you and, and tell me if I'm accurate or not. So th- th- this delivery that came in on Easter, is that the biggest delivery that we've seen to date?
1: Uh, I'm not sure it's the biggest delivery we've ever received, but it's, you know, what's happening now is we're starting to get more. And as as a hotspot area, we're going to get an additional amount to allow us to deal with some of our specifics. So instead of saying, well, you're a hotspot, so we want more people to access, but we're going to keep the supply the same. Uh, there's an increased supply that matches up with that. So right. uh, exactly whether this is the biggest we've ever received, I don't know in terms of the early stages when they were starting out, whether we might have received at once a little bit larger shipments in order to get started on the long-term care facilities. But the good news is, is we're starting to see a bit of that upward work and we have, uh, you know, with the pharmacies opening up, uh, over 20 pharmacies in the city of Hamilton, and more will come in the future. That's, again, additional supply that's in our community. Uh, we shouldn't just fixate on the uh, mass vaccination sites. The fact that people can go to a number of, of pharmacies right now is good news as well, and that is additional supply on top of what we have already.
0: So as you mentioned, as more and more supply comes in, we're going to see the age groups go down and those eligible uh, obviously increase. Um, We're hearing an awful lot about canceled appointments or people that don't show up. We're certainly, as I mentioned before, and this is not recommended by any means, people booking more than one appointment and then figuring out which one they want to go to or who's offering what. Uh, and such. But I understand that one of the reasons you guys are, are moving down uh, in the age groups is because not everybody is jumping on board in all of the other age groups. So could we see, for example, Hamilton's at 50 or sorry, 60 now uh, with the clinics and such. Could we see uh, easily this drop to 50 before the end of the month just simply because uh, not everybody's taking advantage of their age group or their their turn in line?
1: Uh, these things could happen. I mean, our group locally and then the province, uh, from, from, you know, across all 34 public health units is watching what's happening with, uh, with bookings, what's happening with, uh, with capacity within those areas. And obviously they're managing the supply of vaccine that comes in. So you could see that the other piece though. I'll add is that, that now not only have we dropped to 60, which was a 10 year drop. Now we're adding some areas of the city that have dropped to 50. That this is tens of thousands of people that have been added into the eligibility mix. And then if we start to tip into some of the essential workers and on top of that, uh, we expect within a week and a half or so that uh, we're going to start to vaccinate uh, homebound individuals. Uh, we're adding a lot of folks there, which is, which is good. And that's what we've got to keep balancing, you know, watching when it starts to slow down and then open up eligibility so that we can keep those uh, appointments filled as as much as possible, and sometimes it works out really well, and it has a number of weeks. And and at other times, you know, we had to make some pivots over the weekend to say to the province, "Hey, we need to drop to 60 uh, quickly because we're we we've got excess of uh, booking slots available, and and let's get them filled so we can get vaccines in people's arms." But to your original point about why sometimes you know we have uh, we have availability that maybe we shouldn't have or weren't planning on again it goes back to my encouragement that if uh, you know you've done your thinking and you're satisfied about let's let's get this vaccine booked now don't wait don't wait for a better time remember you've got to book two appointments so the faster you get in the faster you get your second appointment be fully vaccinated and, uh, and and be able to move forward so really expect when when groups are eligible jump on board as fast as you can
0: so uh, there's lots of chatter this morning in regard to that uh, second dose, and obviously uh, Canada, the only one extending it uh, to the four month. When you are booking, uh, when someone goes in to get their first shot and they book the second shot, is that that that's still a four month interval? Is still four months out?
1: For for most people, yes. There are some uh, uh, groups. And for instance uh, when we were doing uh, long-term care and retirement right. they were still going on uh, on on the um, the recommended interval by whatever vaccine was being applied but for the vast majority of folks, yes it's uh, you'll get two appointments uh, your first dose appointment and your second dose appointment and it's important that people uh, you know stick to that schedule it is a it is a band that we don't want to push out so some people have phoned and said, well, you know I think about vacations and this and really it's well, I, I think you need to work your vacations around the vaccine appointment, not the other way around, because uh, <laughs> we, we can't simply work through every individual's uh, situation. So we're giving them at that interval because it's important to it come at that interval.
0: So uh, new modeling data released uh, for the Hammer. Uh, what will happen if we don't continue to lock down, uh, even suggesting w- w- the city could need three months of lockdown? Y- your thoughts on on new modeling data?
1: Well, it, it's sobering. Um, it's sobering in terms of, of just, you know, where we started the, this third wave, of course, not down at very low numbers. We were starting at a, you know, a healthy amount of cases and hospitalizations, and it's just going up. And it's it's sobering to see this. We know that the vaccine, you know, rollout is is not going to change this dynamic next week or the week after. It, it needs a couple of months at least to get us into a position where it starts to flatten and and go down and and the reality is with the variants of concern that are in our community and the increased transmission of this and and the fact that it um it has some some more negative um impacts it's really you know as i say a very sober message to look at and yesterday when we talked to the community about this uh, we brought on our health partners because uh, what's also very concerning is the higher and higher numbers of people that are in in need of critical care and ICU care within our hospital system. And always that's the piece that becomes very scary. And I say this often, it's not just about COVID-19 cases in hospital. It's about all the other things that hospitals need to do. It's about the other trauma that occurs in our community where people need access to ICU beds because of things that have nothing to do with COVID-19. Mm. It's about those scheduled surgeries, which are life saving uh, surgeries that we don't want to see ramped down any more than they probably are being done already. And so all of that information says something stronger needed to be done. Our medical officer of health has been calling for that for a few weeks for it to be stronger than the gray lockdown category. And it appears today that uh, the province is going to take some of those steps.
0: Paul Johnson with us, Director of Emergency Center with the City of Hamilton, talking about, uh, of course, where we are with COVID-19 and uh, how to get your shots. Again, uh, in the Hammer uh, 60 Plus and pharmacies offering uh, at 55 Plus. And all you have to do is check out the city website. It is easy to follow. Paul, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Great job with you. Thank you. Here's today's Daily Commentary. If Canada had an adequate supply of COVID-19 vaccine coming into the country on a continuous basis, would we be busy debating who should get it first? Why are we delaying the second dose for up to four months? Which one is best? If we had an adequate supply, why are we debating whether to replace going down in increments of five years as we've been doing with seniors to those in younger essential services like teachers? If we didn't have a shortage, why would we be delaying the second dose for up to four months despite what the manufacturer in Health Canada says? No other country is doing this. Would we be doing this if we had adequate supply? Don't think so. Would we be debating which one we're going to get? For example, the hesitancy around AstraZeneca if there was ample supply and we could choose our favorite. No, we can't do that. Not enough supply. However, still we're pointing at the provinces and not the federal government as if it's to someone's advantage to hold up vaccination. We would not be having any of these debates if there was a strong supply chain of vaccines continuously coming into Canada. Stop drinking the Sunnyways tea. Some common sense, people. I'm Scott Thompson. We've been having this discussion for all three of these waves. It's amazing. So, uh, you know, you can put in as much restriction as you want. Uh, if the people don't abide by it or, or use some common sense along the way, what ends up happening? Shut her all down. And that looks like where we're heading uh, coming up uh, in the next hour or so. We will cover that news conference live. Let's bring in Chris Bauer, research chair in the Department of Applied Mathematics and specialist in mathematical and computer modeling, infectious disease outbreaks, University of Waterloo, and is with us now. Chris, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well.
2: Oh, thanks, Scott. I am. I hope you are, too.
0: Uh, yeah, doing fine. Thanks for uh, taking the time. We appreciate this. We, we're hearing a lot, Chris. Uh, people saying, you know, they're, they're locking us down. They're doing this again, and you know, they did it before, and it just simply does not work. Um, what do you, what is your reaction to that?
2: Well, you know, lockdown is is is, is tough, but it it, it does work. Uh, that much is clear from from both the data and the models, uh, and. Um, you know, they're, they're effective, there are more effective and less effective ways to go about it. And as you pointed out, you know, in, in some ways we have gone for the less, less effective route uh, because people were not adhering to restrictions voluntarily. Um, but, but there's no doubt that lockdown can uh, reduce the caseload and, and prevent our ICUs from becoming overwhelmed.
0: There's many that are saying Toronto's been in a lockdown for weeks and it made no difference whatsoever. It didn't lower the cases at all. What's your response to that?
2: So, so, the, so, you know, Toronto has been locked down, but a lot of the surrounding areas have not been locked down. For example, Guelph, where I live, was actually in the Orange region until recently. Uh, and, of course, all the areas around Toronto are connected to Toronto through commuters and, uh, and traveling. Um, so, uh, you know, what happens in Toronto is influenced by what's happening in, in Hamilton and in Kitchener and Waterloo and, and Barrie and vice versa. Uh, so that's one thing to consider is, is the fact that much of the province has not been locked down. The second thing to consider is that, uh, you know, there's a difference between, uh, say, a doubling of, of cases over a month versus a tripling or quadrupling. Uh, and what the continued lockdown in Toronto has done is that it's prevented what could have been a much more uh, severe and more rapidly accelerating uh, third wave than, than what actually happened Um, So I I think, um, you know, it's uh, it's always hard for us to imagine what would have happened if we hadn't done such and such. But, but, you know, what we do know from empirical studies of of populations where they have relaxed restrictions. And again, what we know from the models is is that it would have been a complete catastrophe uh, if we hadn't locked down in March, if we hadn't locked down uh, again uh, last fall or during Boxing Day, rather. And it would be another catastrophe if we if we if we weren't doing it now.
0: So, to those that have said or say that it may that all of these lockdowns have made no difference, uh, your answer is: look at the modeling. It shows if we hadn't done this, it would be way worse.
2: That's right. Yeah, and you don't even need a PhD in math to, to get a, a rough idea of what would have happened because we know the about 1.5% of, of people who, for example, in March 2020, around 1.5% of people who, who got COVID would have died from it. And we also know that uh, the infection would continue spreading until around you know two, two-thirds of the population had been infected. So you can do this on, on an envelope. You can figure out that if we hadn't locked down in March 2020, we would have had 175,000 deaths in Ontario just in those few months. Um so so that's kind of the alternative that we're looking at is, is uh you know, never mind ICUs being overwhelmed, you couldn't even get an ambulance because they would be running nonstop uh all over the city. So so that's really the alternative that we're that we're looking at.
0: Um, it, we're, we're we're starting to see uh, the age groups, the, those that qualify for a vaccine, go down. We've seen them drop uh, in the Hamilton region. They went down in, in a 10-year interval instead of five uh, because of the availability of appointments. And, you know, some have said, well, it's been confusing. It's this, it's that. And, and again, all you have to do is go to PC and type in uh, vaccine, and it, it's very easy from there. Uh, we certainly have been in this long enough. We know what it's about. Uh, it's not like it's the first wave and we're all confused. So why do you think thousands of appointments are going unfilled? And I, I know lots are pointing to, well, we haven't d- done a good enough job of this. We haven't done a good enough job of that. But what I'm hearing is people are making two and three appointments. They're deciding which vaccine they want, and then they're going to the one that uh, that fits their preference. Uh, so, um you know, at the end of the day, uh, why are thousands of appointments, do you think, going unfilled?
2: Yeah, so I, there's a diversity of, of reasons, and, and some of it might be the kind of, you know, gaming that you're talking about, looking through three appointments. I think also a big issue is that there's a lot of misinformation out there because, you know, public health is, is you know, putting its voice out there uh, through whatever means necessary. But there's also other sources of information which is not accurate. There, there's, there's rumors on Twitter I've seen this even talking to my own family members. Uh, you know, there's there's misconceptions about the vaccine. So a lot of it isn't isn't really it's not hardcore anti-vaxxers. It's just uh, people who don't know quite what to believe, and maybe they heard somewhere or someone told them that well the vaccine won't work against the variant, uh, and and so they're reluctant to get the vaccine. So I think the lion's share of the misdeployments is probably due to just plain old uh, misinformation and the right information being drowned out by by the wrong information unfortunately, the the false information. Uh,
0: Around AstraZeneca, uh, the European Medical Association releasing more information today, confirming there is a link, uh, albeit they say the rewards far outweigh the risks, uh, and not recommending it for those under 30. Does this help at all?
2: Um, I think, well, it, it depends, <laughs> depends on what you mean by help. I mean, so so they did the right thing. Does it help AZ-Z?
0: people feel better about the vaccine? Because again, you know, and, and this is totally anecdotally, but did a few uh, Zoom calls over the holiday weekend, and I was surprised at the amount of people I was talking to that don't want anything to do with the A Z vaccine.
2: Yeah, so I'm, I think they had to make that announcement. Um, you know, but you know, people can react rationally or, or not rationally. Uh, I, I think when it comes to risks and vaccines, especially. It's very really hard for, for us to, you know, balance risks appropriately. Uh, and, you know, that's a human characteristic. That's why we play lotteries, even though we're more likely to be struck by lightning than we are to win a big jackpot, right? So, uh, and the same thing is playing out here. And again, you know, um, uh, you, like like the, the commission said, you've got to balance the risk versus the rewards. And the rewards, out the benefits outweigh the risks uh, 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 um, in the age categories that they've specified above above the age of 30. Um, so, um, you know, so, like, I would take the vaccine if that was my only chance to get vaccinated, absolutely. Uh, and, um, you know, I would even uh, get it for my, my children who are under the age of 30 if that was the only vaccine that they had. Of course, I prefer Moderna or Pfizer, uh, but you're really talking about a, a very small risk um, which shouldn't be a big determinant in decision-making, especially when you're facing the very real risk of, of COVID infection, which even in young people can cause you know, very serious and even long-term consequences. So it's, it's not something that we want to play around with. So I'll take the AstraZeneca vaccine any day of the week, and, and I would also recommend it for my family.
0: Um, Obviously, we wouldn't be having any of these discussions if there was an adequate supply continually coming into uh, the country, despite, you know, all this chatter about there's tons of it sitting in freezers and, you know, whatever. Uh, We certainly wouldn't be debating over four doses or who gets to go first if there was uh, an adequate supply of this. Can you see, and, and again, we're seeing Hamilton jump down by 10 years that uh, due to this hesitancy or whatever it is for these open appointments, we're just going to stop start jumping down in ten year increments, and why not just open it up to anybody that wants it at this point?
2: Right. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. So, you know, the 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 rates of hospitalization and deaths increase with age, and they increase pretty much steadily as you get older. So, it's it, it, it's higher in sixty. You know, if you're over 60 versus under 60, and then it's higher in 70-year-olds, and again higher in 80-year-olds. So I think it does make sense to to kind of go down in increments because of that very rapid acceleration with age. At some point, uh, it, it levels off. So you know, if you're comparing mortality in 40- to 50-year-olds, there's not a huge difference. So at, you know, at some point, they'll they'll just want to say, um, yes, we should open to everybody. Uh, I don't think we're quite there yet because we should you know, make it more available to, say, a 60-year-old at this point than than a 40-year-old in in terms of preventing the most deaths and hospitalizations.
0: So there's been lots of chatter. There was lots of chatter uh, yesterday about uh, how the provinces weren't giving it to the right people, that we should uh, direct more towards essential workers, direct more towards teachers. But does that take away from those at the top end of the age demographic?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, and, and there's really no easy answer because it's not just a question of, of um, mortality. You're basically uh, robbing Peter to pay Paul. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly. It. There are different criteria that you can use, and there's no absolute right criterion. It's all what we decide through uh, 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 through the political process um, uh, to to make to make a, an important to make something an important criterion. So. You could say, well, we should be giving it to grocery workers because they're exposed. Um, uh, or you could say, well, no, we should give it to all, the older people first because they have the highest, you know, rates of mortality. Um, or you could say, which we have done, you know, give it to doctors because they've been putting their lives on the line. Give it to doctors and nurses and paramedics because they've been risking themselves throughout the pandemic. And, and it's uh, we should kind of uh, respond recipro- in, in re- recipro- reciprocally. Um, um, uh, um, so, you know, so there are different ways to argue it depending on your point of view, uh, and um, you know, so I don't have much else to say about that, is, except that it really does depend. And, and I think you know, perhaps there are groups that deserve a second look, um, but uh, uh, but we have to make some you know some decisions at some point uh, um, about who's going to get them, and, and you know, you'll never be able to satisfy satisfy everyone or, or all the criteria.
0: Uh, and, and that being said, as these age groups are being lowered, I mean those uh, those uh, other groups are being facilitated as well. I mean you uh, you can still, if you're 55 plus, go and get a, a a vaccination. Exactly. No matter what industry you're in. That's right. Yeah. Can you see? Uh, do Do you think we will switch to a essential worker sort of mode? Or do you think the supply of vaccine will be enough to uh, coming in in the future to to keep going the way we are?
2: I, I I'm I'm cautiously optimistic about the supply of vaccine because, for example, the U.S. program has been so successful, yeah. And we have always you know more vaccines coming online, uh, uh, coming through um, being you know tested in phase three clinical trials. So. I think the supply situation will will, will improve a lot in, in the coming month or two,
0: simply because Chris, as especially the United States, as they finish up vac- uh, vaccination. Same with the UK. Um, uh, yesterday, um, uh, President Biden saying everybody wa- he wants everybody registered for their vaccine by April nineteenth. Mm-hmm. uh yeah. and, and then going beyond that, and we're certainly seeing in the u k April nineteenth is a day when uh when they're starting to open back up so uh, again, we will get ours as everybody else finishes, really, because the supply will be the, it will be there
2: that's right, and I suppose you know the vaccine hesitancy in those countries may actually work for our benefit in some ways yeah. because if if the demand isn't there in the states still they'll, they'll find someone else to sell it to so um and because of all the vaccines coming online, there might even be a glut. You know, it's not going to happen soon, but there might even be, a, uh, you know, more vaccines than, than we, you know, than we can use. Uh, and as you know, Canada back in, you know, last year, they, they, they procured enough to vaccinate, uh, I believe, eight, 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 um, eight, vaccines per, eight vaccine doses per capita in Canada. <laughs> um, and well, that was done because we don't have domestic capability. But yeah. it, you know, it does go to show that there's a lot of demand out there for more vaccines, and they're more coming online.
0: And uh, that hesitancy that you're talking about in Europe or the United States that could advance things here is that same hesitancy that's lowering the ages in Canada and may open up more uh, spots for those th- that are in those essential situations.
2: Exactly, exactly. I think that's how I, how I see it playing out most likely.
0: So if you're, uh, if you're a, a citizen out there watching all of this unfold, you got a big question mark in your head, um, what do you say to the average citizen about all this stuff, Chris, of, of where we are now?
2: So, you know, the vaccine is the most effective pharmaceutical means to, to prevent infection and not only protect yourself and others. So, you know, if, if you are in high-risk groups, especially if you're older, you should get the vaccine. If not for yourself, then then for the you know the people in those age groups that that you associate with, for example, in your household. Uh, and the most the best thing we can do right now to get out of lockdown and, and, and do it sooner is is to get vaccinated. So if you've got the opportunity, and if you're in a high risk group, especially, you should you should definitely do that.
0: All right, Chris Bowsman with his research chair in the Department of Applied Mathematics, and a specialist in mathematical and computer modeling of infectious disease outbreaks with the University of Waterloo. Chris, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thanks you, too, Scott. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, it's interesting. You know, yesterday, everybody uh, crapping on Doug Ford, crapping on the provincial government, uh, you know, uh, get it out of the freezer, Doug. Get it out of the freezer. Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. Well, if if there's so much sitting in freezers, why is Nasi doing a press conference today talking about how they believe in extending the second dose for four months, something no other country is doing? If there is all this stuff sitting in Dougie's freezer, why are we debating who gets to get it first? If there's all this vaccine sitting in Dougie's freezer, why are we all turning down the AZ and hoping to get the other ones but can't? Because you can't pick your favorite. You can't pick which one you want. You're supposed to take the first available one for you. Why would we be having any of these discussions if all of the vaccine was sitting in Dougie's freezer? We need more vaccines. I know we got a whole bunch of them, but they're all they're all accounted for. You're listening to the Scott Thompson show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, John Iveson from, uh, the post. Let's bring him in. Uh, John Iveson's uh, latest column preposterous NDP policy resolution suggests the inmark the inmates are taking over. John Iveson is with us now, John. Thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi Scott. How are you? I'm doing good, John. I thought it was only the conservatives that had wacky, uh, policy conventions.
3: No. Well, th- this one, uh, the NDP rarely disappoint. They they generally uh, their grassroots are uh, unpredictable. Let's say, and um, well, I guess they're predictable in that they they come up with reckless reckless resolutions that, uh, in all likelihood, the party leadership will not go anywhere near. But but as we saw with the Conservatives, they can they can embarrass the leadership by by voting through things that most mainstream Canadians would turn their nose up at.
0: So we all remember we saw uh, Aaron O'Toole's uh, popularity go down after their last convention because uh, the majority of the party decided they weren't going to vote against a, a line that said that, uh, uh, or they were voting against a line that said uh, that climate change was real. Uh, once again, the, the abortion issue came up. Uh, so uh, is, what sort of, what sort of things are we seeing coming out of the NDP camp that could be similar to this?
3: Well, there's, a, there's about 450 resolutions, somewhere, somewhere around that number. And then they choose about 70 of those. And, you know, most parties stage manage this process so that the, the more wacky of them don't make it. But in in the long list of, of proposals, uh, phasing out the Canadian Armed Forces and retraining mm-hmm. the members to work in parks and public transit was one. Uh, removing statues of Sir Johnny Macdonald because he's an, quote, architect of genocide, uh, expressing solidarity with Cuba and Venezuela, nationalizing big oil, and uh, taxing all wealth over a billion dollars at 100%. So the NDP might lose the billionaire vote, which will probably not hurt them too badly. (laughs)
0: Uh, so how, and we've seen this happen, and I don't know, maybe the liberals are better at this, because I'm sure their policy conventions are equally as, you know, you know, there's fringe players in all parties. But how do you stop, or how does a party stop the opposition from running with these and, and making them the narrative? Because obviously the conservatives are having a terrible problem with this. They don't seem to be able to get away from what the opposition is labeling them as, uh, NDP. Now they've got their own, uh extremes but 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 how does the uh, how do you uh how does a party stop the opposition from running with these
3: well i mean i think the conservative one was way worse because it wasn't just that somebody some whack job in in a an electoral district association managed to get the proposal through but that one actually went to the floor and was voted on by a majority of the of the membership Mm-hmm. Denying that climate change is real, which you know you can't be a you can't be a party anywhere in uh, Western democracies these days and not sign up to the idea that climate change is real. I mean, I think it's it's pretty undeniable to most right-thinking people. So if you vote that through, you're first of all you're you're kneecapping your leadership, and secondly, you're you're creating a, a, an attack ad for the opposition party,
1: yeah, so for the
3: government party in this thing in this case. It remains to be seen with the NDP how many of these uh, more uh, less mainstream ideas go through. Um, I'm trying to use I used the words that the inmates were taking over the institution, and uh, I got told off by people who. I can, ima- so, <laughs> I can um, imagine. So I'm trying not to use that analogy, but <laughs> but um, you know there is a real problem for for uh, party leaderships. And the you know their their senior staff to try and manage this process, whereby you're giving the grassroots the opportunity to have their say, but but you're not letting them uh, dictate policy or even have a, a major influence on policy. I mean, none of these parties uh, allow these resolutions to be man- uh, binding. So it's not like if a, if a if a resolution goes through and it's completely off the wall that the the leadership is bound to go with it. But it doesn't look good if if your grassroots is, is voting for one thing and you're going in a different direction.
0: Uh, obviously, O'Toole took a hit in the polls after that line, uh, after they they they, uh, they refused to admit that climate change was real. Uh, but did that help O'Toole in the sense that now he can say to the Conservative Party, enough of that crap, let's move on?
3: It doesn't help him in any way. I, don't, I just don't see there's any yeah. upside for him in that. I mean, he is, he is down in <clears throat> every category and every poll. Um, he's just not registering with the Canadian public. And when he does register, they don't like him. I mean, it's yeah. tough when when the more they see of your leader, the less they like him. And that seems to be the story. I mean, even when Justin Trudeau was having problems with vaccines and his numbers went down five points, uh, O'Toole's numbers were going down as well. Now, the, the, <clears throat> for the for the NDP, I mean, they've got some real problems here. Uh, Israel is always a problem for the NDP. Yeah. Um, you know the 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 number of resolutions on boycotting and sanctioning israel uh you know there was a umpteen of those the people want to pull out of nato norad all major trade deals there's a there's a, a sort of off the wall uh theory of economics called modern monetary theory that essentially allows you to print your own money and spend as much money as you like without believing that you'll be subject to inflation <clears throat> all these things are going to hurt the ndp in the same way that the social cons hurt the conservatives but i think that events have moved in the favor of the ndp you know the pandemic has ripped up the old social contract and you've now got every party proposing um new welfare plans ways to help workers um to deal with inequality to deal with health care and these are issues that the, the ndp is strong on and has been advocating you know, a number of times, the, for example, the Liberals tried to reduce the amount that people would receive in Serb, and it was the the NDP that forced them to keep it at uh, two thousand dollars. So, as far as the kind of grand scheme of things, things are are, are working out a bit better for the NDP. Jagmeet Singh has got uh, the highest net approval ratings among the three major party leaders. But, I mean, the bloom has definitely come off Trudeau, and uh, yet. The opposite of uh, of O'Toole, the more people see of rugby, the more they like it. The last campaign, why do you think,
0: think the saw, bloom? Why do you think the bloom is off of Justin Trudeau well, now? Just it still seems
3: that I'll he's. I just finish a thought and sing. the last yeah. campaign. He went into the campaign uh, the month before. The average in the polls was thirteen point four percent support for the NDP. In the last week of the campaign, he scored eighteen point four percent. So he he, he single handedly lifted that number by five percent and they ended up with 16 because as the uh, liberals always do they scare the scare the NDP with the prospect of a conservative government in the last days of the campaign but things a good campaigner so you know I think if you're from from an NDP point of view uh, he can make hay with some of the things that Justin Trudeau has done the blackface the the, the, the pipeline. Yeah. Um, the idea that he's going to bring in pharmacare, which they've talked about forever but have never actually done, these are the things that the, the NDP can score with. Now, I don't, I don't think that we're going to see a major breakthrough for the NDP. The numbers aren't suggesting that, for example, they're going to reclaim where they were in Quebec. Um, and I think that because the Liberal Party is so far left, it really does impede the ability for the NDP to grow. But I do think that they'll probably come out of the campaign, the next campaign, with more seats than they went in. And I think Jugmeet will probably have a good campaign. He's just a natural campaigner. Uh,
0: We look at the most success that the NDP has had, uh, the days of Jack Layton, the days of Bob Ray. Is Jugmeet Singh uh, the person who can bring this into a more mainstream party, bring it more to the centre, for lack of a better word?
3: Well, his real problem is that the Liberal Party has occupied that space on the centre left, and so to create his own space, he's he's had to go further left, and he's he's embraced yeah. things that that I think were they ever to be in government, they would they would have a real problem implementing. You know, at, at some at the moment, the NDP's uh, ability to move the economy back into balanced budgets would is impeded by the things that they're suggesting. So I think that's his biggest problem. It's not that. Um, that he wouldn't take them in that direction if he if he had a chance because I think that that's they know that's where their where their growth is. But uh, you know the the liberal strategy from day one under Justin Trudeau was to occupy that spot on the centre left and dominate uh, the vote among pro- progressive voters, and that way you win the election. I mean, just by dint of the fact that the conservative vote is is kind of thirty percent, give or take plus or minus five points. And they have a real problem getting, you know, even as close as 40 percent, which which Harper did by creating a coalition with immigrants and, and added seats in Quebec. Uh, O'Toole is nowhere near creating that kind of coalition. And in fact, he's in the mid-20s, according to some polls at the moment.
0: So if uh, if Jugmeet Singh uh, basically his lunch is being eaten by the liberals, and you're suggesting he will move farther left, uh, is that is that attractive to the mainstream? Can you see Canada? Because once you go further left, you're you're heading into socialist car- category uh, territory, rather. Is is that where you see Canada going? Well,
3: I think we're we're already in that kind of centre left yeah. area, and. Uh, and and the, his real area for growth is among people who voted Liberal last time, but have have had their fill of Trudeau.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
3: you know that's less strategic and more tactical, if you like. Um, he's just going to try and pick off some voters here and there. Which is what I mean when I don't see a a huge breakthrough for the NDP. I don't think that the, you're going to see a an orange wave come through Quebec again. Although you know nobody saw that in 2011. But but I just don't think that the um, I don't think that there are enough people demanding change right now. And if you look at the, the uh, some of the polling, it suggests that the people who want change, and this may be a byproduct of the pandemic, but the people who want to risk change is lower than it was in, at the election in 2019,
1: mm.
3: which suggests you're not going to see major shifts in support. You might uh, I think that the conservative base is disenchanted. Um, I think Singh is trying not to disenchant his own base, so he's staying hugging the left pretty closely, and he may pick up some disenchanted liberals, but it doesn't seem to me that there's going to be enough of them to make a huge difference in the in the result that comes back.
0: Do you see the NDP splitting the left vote?
3: Well, to an extent, but not to the, to the extent that you would... Not
0: to do any damage?
3: Not to do serious damage. I mean, you might see the NDP picking up some seats and you might see um, the block picking up some seats in Quebec. <clears throat> I think more likely you would see the, the block losing a little around the edges, maybe the NDP picking up a few from the Liberals, um, and the Conservatives probably losing seats at this stage.
0: Uh, earlier, John, you said the, the blooms off Justin Trudeau. Why do you say that?
3: Well, <laughs> to, to ask the question is to answer it. I mean... Um, <laughs>
0: They, no, but polls are still showing him relatively high. Uh, there was a poll not too long ago that said that they were increasing, especially after what had happened with the con- the conservative convention. Uh, yeah, he seemed I, to be polling pretty strong.
3: Well, I don't I don't think that that is necessarily an endorsement of Justin Trudeau. Though, I mean, if you look at the his personal numbers, they're not great. I mean, he's 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 a virtually a wash when it comes to those who think positively about him and those who think negatively I mean I think the Liberal Party brand is stronger than the Trudeau brand right now and that's probably because uh, you know we're in the middle of a pandemic and let's face it the government is still paying the way for, for millions mm-hmm. of Canadians through through uh, income replacement programs and they don't see a, a an alternative to be frank I mean for whatever reason Trudeau is not catching on and he's not being seen by many people as a a credible alternative to the Liberals. And I think things like this NDP convention means that for most mainstream Canadians, the NDP aren't either.
0: So basically status quo for the time being, you're saying?
3: Well, it's possible, I guess, that the Liberals might eke eke out a a majority. um, If enough people feel that the, the two alternatives are are not uh, palatable. But, uh, but there is this thing that I, I, um, I think I even came on your show and talked about a few weeks ago. I said, there seemed to be a lot of people. And this was post the conservative convention.
0: Seemed to mm-hmm. be a lot of
3: people who feel politically homeless.
0: Yeah. And so yeah. we
3: sent out, we sent out a pollster to ask the question and John Wright came back with the, the answer that 57% of people feel politically homeless. So there's no great enthusiasm for anybody.
0: You so know, it's interesting I mean you say it. that because I've asked pollsters about the center and what's happened to the center, and they said the center, as you see it, is has disappeared. Those people have gone to the fringes. So if those people have gone to the fringes, how can you say 57% are looking for a home? I mean, yeah, they, I isn't I that proof that the center is
3: there? I mean, that suggests that we're seeing polarization like we've seen in the U.S. And I, yeah. there's nothing in the polling that suggests that to me. I mean, I think we've, we've, what we've got is a, large mass in the center right and center left where people are holding their nose and either voting conservative or voting liberal
0: it's interesting because i had o'toole on uh, last week or the week before and i had this exact same discussion with them you know it used to be one was uh, right of center one left of center uh now it's one to the far right one to the far left and, and farther left and he came right out on this show and said i'm the guy in the center do you agree with well, that? That's-
3: well, that's what he's tried to do. I mean, his speech on the, at the convention, I thought was very good, it, and it laid out this, this position. But unfortunately for him, his base hasn't come with him. And I mean, to move the center of gravity of a major party requires a lot of political skill, and it requires a lot of buy-in from, from your base. And he doesn't appear to have that. I mean, he wasn't an overwhelming choice by the, by the members in the first place. Uh, so to try and do what he's trying to do, which which I totally agree with. I mean, if you're the Conservatives, having lost the last election, despite winning the popular vote, um, and you know that you weren't so far away from winning over people in in, uh, in the suburbs of Ontario, for example,
0: then and that's with Andrew Shear at the helm,
3: right? And then you so you go after that vote, and and you know, in theory, O'Toole should be a lot more palatable to to that audience than than Shear was. Uh, you know, he's, he's stated his position on abortion. He stayed in his position on climate change. But for whatever he- reason, it's, it's not happening. I think he's, he's got a, maybe a last opportunity to convince people, and that's when he brings out his environmental policy. And it can't be uh, trying to fudge the issue or uh, trying to say, yeah, well, we're going to do stuff. We'll tell you about it later. Uh, it has to come yeah. out pretty clearly and lay out a roadmap on how they're going to do the things that he said they're going to do. And that's meet the Paris targets and get to net zero by 2050. So if he can do that, he might win some of these people back, because I think it is a consideration to a lot of centrist voters. And if he's claiming to be the party of the centre, which I think is exactly where they should be, then he's got to prove it to a lot of people.
0: John Iveson's been with us from the National Post. His latest John Iveson uh, preposterous NDP policy resolution suggests uh, we'll leave the rest. (laughs) Because I don't want John getting it anymore. Yeah, I'm getting getting emails. (laughs) I hear you. I hear you. But anyway, it certainly proves that uh, these policy conventions can uh, bring up the extremes of any party. John, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Bye.